cybersecurity is about more than just technology. It's about how people behave with emails, data, and cloud applications that directly impacts your company's security posture. Security works best when it's ingrained in the culture of your organization. To learn how to build a security culture and transform your employees from targets into a strong line of defense, head to securityweekly.com forward slash proof point and visit their cybersecurity awareness center. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly InfoSec World 2021. It's proud to announce its keynote lineup for this year's event. Here from Robert Hershevik, plus heads of security at the NFL, TikTok, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Stanford University, and more. Security Weekly listeners save 20% on your digital pass as this is a virtual event. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW 2021. With us for this segment is Matt Linton. Matt cut his technical teeth in the muds and IRC dens of the 90s while daylighting in search and rescue. Matt joins us to discuss the term incident commander. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Nice to have you, Matt. Uh, as uh, with all new guests on the show, I always like to ask, how did you get your start in information security? How I got my start in InfoSec? Uh, well, I was um, kind of hanging out on a mud and in some IRC rooms with friends when I was in uh, high school and college. And I was on a career path towards um, full-time disaster management. So I was working as an EMT and a firefighter and doing rescue stuff. And then right around 2000 in the dot-com times, um, I was going through a little bit of burnout at the same time as a bunch of people I knew were forming a startup in the Bay Area. And they had a problem, which was... Um, their lead senior network architect was having a hard time finding an assistant who would stick around. Uh, and huh. they got desperate and they made me a deal. And they said, you move to the Bay Area and agree to stick around and we'll teach you all the things you need to know to be a Unix administrator. And I was like, you know what? I need a change of scenery. I will take this deal. And I moved out here to join a dot com, got laid off a month and a half later. Oh, uh, how much Unix then, did uh, you learn in a month and a half? I did not learn a lot of Unix in a month and a half. I learned enough to know that um, when you're reorganizing a network cabinet and you go in on a Saturday and you think, I'll just unplug all the ones that don't have a light lit, <laughs> that's a really stupid idea and you will spend all day Monday <laughs> fixing it. Been there. And you, you also you also learn the, that uh, rm dash space dash rf forward slash uh, removes the French language pack so your system runs faster. Of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. <clears throat> um, and init zero makes all the processes run at level zero. It does. <laughs> so I, I fell from there into a junior, junior Unix admin gig at a research lab. Um, we had a mutual agreement in that they didn't have a lot of money, and I was willing to work for almost nothing to get the experience. <laughs> um, and That's then great kind of agreement. I spent years there. I learned Unix sysadmining, and I got more and more into kind of how systems work. And then from there, InfoSec started to become a professionalized thing. And there's this confluence wherein my interest in protecting people kind of from the disaster management and EMS side of my life ran into the ability to protect people from an InfoSec side. Um, and I ended up moving into information security, taking some enthralling SANS courses from Ed Scotus, mm. uh, and those me as well yeah. really catalyzed me to just yeah. wanting to focus on security. So Matt, wait, did you were you always a part time uh, EMS? Like when did that enter the picture? So I was full time EMS and fire for about mm -hmm. the first six years. I had jobs, mm -hmm. um, and then when I cut over to doing information security and system administration, I was at a big government research lab, and they had enough 
weird stuff around. So I was at the NASA Ames Research Center, mm -hmm. and they had enough dangerous stuff around there that they actually had their own on-site disaster crew. Mm -hmm. And since I still had valid medical and emergency certs, they let me join the disaster crew part-time just to kind of keep my hand in it uh, while I was working on the technical stuff. Wait, what kind of disasters were you preparing for at that facility? Well, so, for example, that facility has All a... Um, 40 foot by 80 foot wind tunnel that mm -hmm. moves wind at about 180 knots and draws 45 megawatts of power when you turn it on wow um, they have a kiln that reaches uh, thousands of degrees celsius and uses 60 megawatts um, wow. confined spaces toxic gases toxic metals um, it turns out research at nasa can be pretty dangerous did anyone get hurt while you were we were there do you have emergencies to respond to well, I, I would say those things are probably someone else's medical record, and I, I shouldn't go into it too much. <laughs> safe answer. Safe answer. Any any sanitized uh, examples that you can give of maybe not involving people but equipment? We always like to hear about stuff blowing up, Matt, right? Yeah, I mean, they blow up a lot of stuff on purpose there, too. Mm. I'm trying to think of equipment. but I, We did have to uh, remove somebody from between the... Uh, fan blades of a wind tunnel once then they weren't trapped or injured or anything they just needed to be gotten through gotcha gotcha yeah yeah don't turn it um, on don't turn it yeah, on. yeah and then from there yeah that's what lockout tag out is for right you got somebody <laughs> in the wind tunnel blade lockout yep. tag out the all the industrial control people know what i'm talking about right now hell yeah um and then they because they were a federal agency they cross loaned me to fema rescue teams uh which was really where i got a lot of chance to see kind of big disaster management happen. Were you were you on site with FEMA and at, at other kinds of uh, disaster sites or just training with them? Yeah, no, so we trained a lot, but we would also deploy to hurricanes, um, mm -hmm. especially after Katrina. I was going to say like Katrina to was a big now. One, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we pre-deployed to hurricane zones. I got to do a little bit of building search and rescue for hurricanes and the like. Um, I was fortunate enough that California did not have any large earthquakes in the time I was with that team. Mm. How do you how do you see incident response and disaster recovery uh, starting to evolve and change? Like, what are some of the things that we need to be expecting and kind of uh, catalyzing ourselves to take on? So, one of the commonalities that I see a lot of is, you know, in EMS and rescue and fire, people expect an awful lot of you, right? No matter how well you did putting out a fire, no matter how well you did controlling a hazmat situation, there's always something you could have done better. And there's always somebody there to point it out. So in InfoSec 2, especially in the incident response, I see that, you know, as an industry, we're maturing. We're not nearly as mature as disaster rescue services are. And as we mature, people are starting to expect more from us. They don't just want us to catch the hacker and kick them out. They want us to catch the hacker and kick them out and let them know what happened and let them know what we're going to do better next time and prevent it from happening next time. And there's sort of these stacked expectations. Um, you know, if you look at relatively recent regulations like GDPR, GDPR, if you have a attack that potentially could touch user data, you're not expected to just fix the hack. You're expected to fix it and then tell people it occurred, tell them if they have anything to worry about, help make them whole again if you can. Um, and so we need to mature kind of similarly to how fire and rescue needed to mature um, because the expectations keep growing. And Matt, so, how did, uh, so then how did you, uh, you know, doing the uh, physical incident response, 
did you end up working in incident response? I think where we last left off in your story, you were working for a large government uh, lab and entity. Uh, so, like, what happened from there? So, um, at some point, I found out that actual DFIR, incident response, was a career path I could go down, and I really got interested in that. And I started doing kind of that small-scale forensics and incident response you do when you have a little network and not very much money. You know, you detect a thing or somebody tells you a thing happened. You investigate it and kind of you have to do all the things. Mm -hmm. You are the forensic analyst, the incident responder. You write up the report after. Um, you have a really small team doing a lot of things. And, and, then, then, and then you're the hero. You get to be the hero. That's <laughs> my favorite thing about incident response yeah. is I didn't break it. Right. right. So yeah. I'm not the sys admin where if I break it, I have to do the incident response and fix it. You're absolutely right. Right. I like professional incident response because no matter how bad things are right now, it's at least not my fault they're that bad and I'm there to fix it. Um, yeah. yeah. So from there, I got into the incident response team at NASA Ames. Um, I continued working on kind of larger and more complex issues. And as NASA grew and professionalized, we started working across centers. So there's 14-ish field centers at NASA, depending on the wind. And uh, we needed to collaborate with each other because the network was connected and the incident response teams needed to be connected too. And that's when I started trying to bring some of the lessons of incident command from the rescue world, where you have lots of different teams who, on a large incident, need to interact with each other well, even mm -hmm. if they've never met before. And DFIR, where the same thing can kind of happen in a larger scale incident. Um, and after I'd been doing that for a few years, I kind of got reached out to by Google and they made me an offer that I would have been an insane person to refuse. And they gave me the ability to work full time on, you know, large scale incident response challenges. So that's where I am today. Because Google, right? <laughs> yeah, it turns out even small scale is large scale at Google. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> what, what I've heard about some of the things that, at Google, Matt, is the... The tooling and the processes are very specific to Google. And if that's true, was that like a big adjust adjustment for you? Yeah, you know, in some ways, the tooling and the processes are very Google specific, but in other ways, they're really not. Um, and I, I guess I can clarify to that by saying a lot of the environment at Google, you know, was very custom when I got there. Mm. But as Google itself moves more towards, you know, cloud solutions for things and building their own things in cloud, a lot of the things that we build these days, like, um, you know, DF TimeWolf and Turbinia and uh, TimeSketch, they're kind of things that we use in GCE and other people might use in GCE too. So I think the skills are starting to expand to be really useful outside of Google, too. Well, yeah, and that's the Amazon model, too, right? I'm building this cloud to support Amazon, yeah. but I'm also going to commoditize it for the rest of the world. Yeah, um, but especially in the people parts, because where the biggest challenge in incident response lies, at least in my perspective, it's always in the people parts. And people you know, are relatively similar across all kinds of companies, across all kinds of places, all kinds of countries. And the challenges in command control and communication when you're getting into leading a really potentially expansive thing, those are skills that I think translate everywhere. They translate lots of places and right. even across domains. Because you know, you know the personas. Is it, it, can we talk about that? Because there's, I mean, you, you hate can, to call yes. them stereotypes, but I have to imagine that working... As much in, in like full in incident response as you are, Matt, you are hyper aware of those different personas and different types. And again, I, I don't want to stereotype people, but 
I think people kind of fall into general buckets when especially there's an incident or an emergency that happens and people tend to communicate and or behave in certain ways. And how you deal with that is probably stuff you've thought about, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the three core skills, we call them the three C's of, of large incident management, command, control, and communications. Mm-hmm. The history of the three C's goes all the way back to the 1970s when California CDF had a program called Firescope to try to make emergency management better. And they did postmortems on all these kinds of disasters, forest fires, big car wrecks, airplane crashes. And they were trying to get to the root of what are the things that are always going wrong and how can we fix them? And the human factors that they found were going wrong time and time after again were command control and communications. Command being, is someone in charge and does everyone know who's in charge? Mm -hmm. Control being, is the person who's in charge actively managing the incident, actively controlling it, which means thinking a few steps ahead, knowing what the plan is, knowing what the objectives are. And then the biggest part, as always, is communications. And you nailed it right there when you said, you know, the different styles of people have different styles of communicating. I think a lot of the fun I have in incident management challenges is, you know, especially at Google, the thing I love is nobody's reluctant to help, right? If you have an incident, if you need things, I've never asked somebody for help I needed from them and had them come back and say, not my job. Mm. But I have had to communicate in different ways to different people and learn kind of this skill of over communicating when you're in an incident to the extent that everybody is 100% sure what you mean and what they're supposed to be doing. And that takes a lot of getting used to. Yeah, because I I can see it almost, I'm sorry, like a double-edged sword, Matt, where people that don't want to communicate are on one end of the spectrum and people that over communicate on their other end of the spectrum and like both ends of that spectrum are really bad when you're responding to an incident yes yeah um and they each need their own nudges right Mm -hmm. um sometimes the under communicators need to be encouraged to really come out and be a little bit more communicative during an incident sometimes the over communicators need a little bit of direction too you know helping them focus in on what's critical as a good incident manager, you're actively managing that. You know, you're telling people, hey, I really love what you have to say, but the objective in this sync is X. You know, we need mm-hmm. to stick to that objective. Um, and for the people you're not hearing from, you know, you're kind of calling them out like, you know, what do you think, Gary? What is your opinion on this? Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the while, you're kind of having to project a command presence where somebody needs to know what we're doing, and that's you, and you need to direct it. So you're, I mean, you need to be a people person first and foremost. I think you do need a good amount of people skills to do kind of larger scale incident management. Yeah. Mm. And I, I think in the fire service too, by the time you're a battalion chief or you're somebody who's going to be called upon to be incident commander of, you know, 500, a thousand people, you've had to have gotten pretty good at understanding people and what drives them and knowing how to communicate with them. In, in knowing how to, to your <clears throat> earlier point, point them in the right direction, give them focus and purpose. And in an incident, time is of the essence. And I'd imagine that being able to identify what someone's good at and not good at very quickly is a huge, huge skill in your favor. The other thing too is I like to remind people, you got to tell people the why. Mm. Um, you know, Googlers are very helpful. They want to help. They will do whatever it is you need them to do for an incident. But a lot of the times they're smarter than you, right? Most of the people that I work with are smarter than me. And in their area of expertise, if I tell them, you know, go do this thing for me, they'll go do it. But if I tell them, 
I'm worried the attacker is going to do this. And I think if we do this protective measure, it'll stop them. Can you do that? Then they'll give me the yes, I can, but also have you considered peace. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a part of having a strong command and control is making sure that you're telling people what you need, but carving the space out for them to advise you because they're experts yeah. and their job Drawing is on their expertise is, is awesome. That's that's a lot of wisdom right there, Matt. That's, that's, that's very good advice. Oh. Yeah. What about scaling? I mean, you you know, I can imagine this in a small setting, but you're at a ginormous company. How does how does instant um, command scale down so that you're not having everybody in charge who's not in reach? That's a great question. Um, that is why we've based Google's incident management procedures off of this thing called ICS, the Incident Command System. And if you've seen the term Incident Commander, because I'm on Twitter, I see like Scott Roberts from GitHub tweet, and he'll use the term incident commander and it's kind of becoming a popular term in our industry ics the incident command system is the system that was designed by professional rescuers that came out of the fire scope program and into the national incident management framework and it kind of it's a way to build a team that is perfectly suited for incident management and grows along with the incident and that is kind of how incidents go you have a lead you have a small team of people looking into the lead and then the lead <clears throat> runs somewhere and you realize you need more people or you need more analysis and then things can grow from there. And if they grow to a large scale, you might end up needing lots of people. Um, during Spectre and Meltdown, the, the size of the team working on that problem was around 300 core people on the team. And what mm -hmm. happens is exactly the same way it works in Fire and Rescue. The first truck on the scene, they get out, they know it's a big thing, they haven't assessed yet, the ranking officer on the truck is the incident commander and they're the incident commander until somebody more senior arrives and takes over. Then they're the incident commander until somebody more senior arrives to take over. And the rule of thumb for all of those more senior people arriving is take over only if you need to let the current incident commander keep going if they're doing a good job. Mm. Um, and we've put in place this program called IMAG incident management at Google, where we train everybody Ideally, everyone who is an on-call person for any service, how to do that, how to be the incident commander, how to delegate, how to grow, and how to hand it over. And so this lets us scale the team because an incident commander will put in place an operations lead. An operations lead has a known role. Everyone knows what they do, and they can delegate further down. So if you imagine a giant network outage, you might have an incident commander for the outage a operations lead for the technical teams and then you might have a let's just say bgp team under the operations lead and you might have a wan team and a LAN team um, you might end up with a logistics team helping out and it's designed so that you can scale it as large as you want but each person in the response reports upward only to one person above them and that's the person from whom they take direction and give status reports so you don't end up with people running around solving the same problem twice you know, pulling the same data twice, not knowing what they're really working on. Matt, so how, uh, how do I just you... want to uh, address kind of the, the elephant in the room. Matt, you say as much or as little as you want about this, but those of us from the outside looking in at Google have read reports of Google employees being unhappy in your role with having to work with Google employees from across the organization on an, at an incident. Has that, has that been a challenge? Are these, in your mind, like just isolated incidents? I know at one time they were talking about walkouts. There are Google employees not happy about supporting efforts in China and things like that. Does that make your job more difficult? Or, I mean, you can say no comment. Like, I totally respect that. 
Well, you know, I came prior to Google from the U.S. government, and I, I think you would probably guess that there are vast differences of opinion even within the U.S. government about what the government should or shouldn't be doing. Where I focus things on is my team is there to protect user data, and we're there to protect the users. And so part of my job is ensuring that everyone I work with knows I am here to make things better and protect people. And when I call upon you for help during an incident, regardless of what else might be going on in your life and regardless of how you feel mm -hmm. about your employment at the time, mm -hmm. I need your help to protect people. Mm -hmm. And this is what is happening and this is what we are going to do. To, to um, use a phrase, Matt fights for the users. Mm. <laughs> Fight for the user. So well done. my yeah, team but, you know, man, nothing specifically like could... doesn't really have a lot of, of pushback on yeah. incidents. Well, I mean, regardless of what's going on, uh, an incident, there's no nothing like an incident to help bring people together. <laughs> I, yes. I've, I've often found that, and I don't know if you experienced this too, like after an incident and the dust settles, you feel kind of more of a bond, with, not just with each other, but to the company as well, because you all just kind of work to, to help uh, you know recover from this incident. And, and, you know, oftentimes a community is at its strongest after a disaster. Yeah. Uh, because 90% yeah. plus of rescues done after an earthquake or a flood or a disaster are self-rescue by other members of the community. Mm -hmm. um, and then afterward, there's a bond from rebuilding. There's a bond from people who pulled each other out of harm's way, et cetera. And I think, again, that's one place where there's a lot of parallels between mm -hmm. disaster management and chaos management. So so I'm thinking about this. The, what Your model is very straightforward, but I'm thinking, is that gonna is that gonna fit for most it folks or if you had to do a lot of training and education to, to help people learn a, a good way to this approach this incident man approach and and uh and internalize it yeah some of the fundamental pieces of this are actually pretty counterintuitive to people um right the example the idea that you should over communicate during an emergency or you know the idea that we're going to form a very rigid organizational tree and somehow that's going to make the incident response more flexible. So we have a training course inside of Google, um, the IMAG training, and it's listed in, in the on-call kind of going on-call guide that before you pick up a pager and you're on-call for a service, you should go through IMAG training. We have a group of about 30 or 40 pretty senior people who have been extensively trained and have experience in managing incidents. And then collectively, we've trained more than 5,000 other Googlers at this point on the basics of, you know, how to respond to an, an emergency and be the incident commander and lead a team. Wait, now, hold on a minute. Did you say pick up a pager? Do you guys still have pagers? Figuratively speaking. It's, it's a, a figure. Phone. It's a figure of speech. Yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. You, you, you caught me showing my age with the old <laughs> right. Motorola's. I, I, I was going to say, man, I got to go get some pox egg sniffing going on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I mean, curious no. from a from a smaller scale standpoint, uh, how how are you doing, or how would you foresee this uh, not burning out your upper level echelon of very very experienced, very senior people trying to also mentor kind of the next generation? You got that training going on. One of the hard things for mentoring is it's really hard to scale because you've got that one guy that knows all the things that has to do all the things and you're still trying to train people and you're trying to mentor and bring people up, but that also requires them to uh, undercommit to other things. So how do you like scale that back uh, where you don't have a big crew and then obviously you've scaled that up. So it works in, in a larger scale environment. Yeah. So similarly to how kind of it works in the fire service, right? You can practice ICS on a small scale event. You know, if you have a car that hit a bus in an intersection, 
there's enough people involved that you can practice ICS and set up incident command and have an ops lead and kind of practice it at a small scale before you get to the point where you need to be in charge of like a levee breaking and flooding a whole town, right? So similarly, you can practice IMAG on smaller incidents, and we do, um, as long as it's not too much structure that it gets in the way of handling whatever's going on, we practice it that way. Um, the other thing we do is we like to, every once in a while, respond to our red teamers as though they're attackers and just incident manage the heck out of the red team. Um, kind of keeps us on our toes, and it gives us a chance to put newer people in the pilot seat with a more experienced person kind of riding shotgun and, and keeping an eye and giving tips. Hmm. Uh, go ahead, Paul. Uh, I was just going to say, are there, uh, in addition to process, did you talk about tools already that you've developed at Google and are some of those open source or are there specialized tools? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, the tooling supports the process, right? And it mm -hmm. supports the people. And because of the scale we have, we do have tooling that we've written and open sourced. Um, I think you're, you're probably familiar with Plazo, formerly logged to timeline, which is a tool that rips. Mm -hmm. um, you can give it a disk image and it rips the disk image apart, looks for everything that looks like a log file and then creates an ordered timeline out of the log file. We have another tool called Time Sketch that can then take a lot of timelines from a bunch of different systems. And then it funnels them all into an elastic search backed indexable searchable database. Mm -hmm. And the way we use time sketch is if you have 50 or 100 or 150 hosts that you're trying to do forensics on, all of you can do forensics on all of the hosts at the same time mm. by looking through the log lines via time sketch and then annotating interesting looking log lines as you find them. So if one person's looking for malware execution, another's looking for suspicious logins, and another person's looking for, you know, weird cron jobs being installed. Collectively, as those three analysts are annotating events, TimeSketch is building a meta timeline that shows you, you know, login occurred, malware was executed, cron job was established, login occurred to another system. And then it will graph for you in the order in which the events occurred, visually, how things happened, how they played out during the incident. Oh my God. And that's one of the ways that we're able to amplify forensic analysts across a larger number of machines than we have analysts instead of just sitting there one disk image at a time, you know, poking around. That's awesome. Um, if I recall, Matt, you used to do a lot with, uh, you know, physical access, physical pen testing, physical whatever. Is physical still a thing you have to worry about? Like, are there use cases where you've got to be able to crash the gate? Are we all being you know, able I to do things? Go ahead. Yeah, I've never had to crash the gate at Google. And I think that's part of this is, you know, I grew into the role I'm in now from, you know, a research and development lab where you were really called upon to wear a lot of hats. I honestly think that's a great way to get into InfoSec is being in a place where you get to try on a lot of hats and get a lot of skills out of it. And then I specialized, right? Because that is the, the course I have taken was to wear a lot of hats, find my niche, and then really specialize. And so at Google, I haven't had the chance to do much physical pen testing work for my employment in the last seven years, but I've had a really great opportunity to zero in on some very hard problems and be able to solve and scale them. Those physical pen test days were fun, though. Mm. Oh, yeah. They make for great stories. Which yeah, I, I, I always think found I remember, interesting. Uh, Go ahead, man. At least once I remember balcony climbing the Rio Hotel in a toga at DEF CON, though. 
<laughs> was that just part of a party or was that part of a physical pen test or both? <laughs> I wanted to get into the Caesars challenge party and I found a vacant room two <laughs> floors up from Caesars challenge, but we aligned with their balcony. Um, and so I rappelled down to their balcony and then was able to get in through the back door. Uh, but then like 10 minutes later, I realized I had to go to the bathroom and I didn't know the password still. So I had to spend the next 10 minutes trying to social engineer people who were already in the party to tell me what the password was so I could get back in. While trying not to pee your pants. While trying not to pee my toga, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> not pants, toga. Right, right, my bad. Oh. <clears throat> is, I, one of the questions from Discord, is Foremost part of the disk log extractor? What's that? Is Foremost part of the uh, disk log extractor? Um, I don't know that it's integrated into it, but it can take output from lots of different tools. Okay, cool. I think he's talking about Plazo there, right? Or he or she? I, probably. I was just reading it from the Discord chat. Yeah, um, and fully open sourced, so if somebody wants to submit a module. There you go. Well, the reason I was asking about physical, I was thinking about some of the new um, BGP mess-ups where there are cases where they've got to get in there and physically access the uh, routers. And of course, you know the stories about, you know, the access control system was also offline because of the BGP error. Um, yeah, you know, if putting my firefighter hat back on, right, there are very few places fire and rescue can't get if you're willing to destroy some stuff along the way, um, <laughs> up to and including bank vaults, because, you, you know, a toddler gets locked in a bank vault, who are they going to call? Uh, it turns out our search and rescue team is who they'll call. Um, so, you know, I have a Halligan bar. I'm pretty sure that would have gotten me into a data center rack if I needed to. Absolutely. It hasn't been a problem so far. <laughs> mm. Matt, obviously you've benefited from uh, your EMS background and physical incident response background. For those that want to get into incident response and forensics, what are your recommendations? For getting into incident response and forensics. So... One thing, especially for forensics, one thing I think we undervalue a lot in InfoSec is system administrators and people who have worked the help desk. And the reason I say that is I feel like a lot of the base of knowledge that I draw upon to make informed decisions as an incident responder or even to know what the heck is going on as a forensic analyst, those base skills all come from knowing how a system is supposed to work and being able to understand why it's not working the way it's supposed to work. And then a lot of the skills I draw upon to have the people skills necessary to be an incident commander, they come from having been a sysadmin and having to yeah. have a customer service mindset while I debug complicated things with people. And so I guess I would start off the bat by saying, do not undervalue system administration time uh, and then pivoting into InfoSec from there. Another piece of advice I often give people who say they're looking for something they can do without having to be employed first. And you guys are going to rake me over the coals for this, but run your own mail server, like on bare metal, <laughs> put some bare metal in a colo, get a mail server going, configure IMAP for yourself, configure DMARC. By the time you're done and you have a mail server that works properly, um, if you're still sane, you're going to have run <laughs> through about 86 different RFCs and you will know how they work. You'll know how SMTP, and send mail, and you'll know how DKIM works, and DMARC, and SPF. Wait, are you suggesting folks stand up their own send mail server, like on Unix or Linux? What's, what's your, let's get in some specifics here, Matt. 
Well, I love uh, PostFix on Linux personally or FreeBSD, but mm -hmm. whatever platform you want to be an expert in, you know, if you want to be an exchange expert, set yourself sure. up an exchange server. Yeah, I've done both. That, I, I've, you know, I've, done, I've done exchange and PostFix on BSD. You've done exchange on BSD? Uh, no, I've done exchange. Oh. <laughs> I've done exchange. <laughs> you ported port an exchange to BSD, no. Larry? That's hell amazing. No. Oh, hell yes. no. <laughs> I, I ate this brownie at a party, and suddenly my free BSD server had exchange on it. I know. <laughs> Matt, I think we're at the same party. <laughs> and you were both wearing togas. It was amazing. <laughs> I didn't have to pee, though. <laughs> But, yeah, no, I mean, that, that in, in all great, seriousness, that that's advice. something a yeah, yeah. that's something a newbie can do, and it's something they can afford to do, right? And that's important. In bonus, you then you've got your own mail server. server, yeah, and you can host it and for you any domain own, you yeah. want. Which is funny because yeah. most of us older curmudgeoning people are like, I set up a mail server in my day, and I don't want everyone to do that shit again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I still I, maintain my own because even as I get into management and even as I'm leading teams, instead of getting my hands on the keyboard, I want to maintain the technical credibility in infosec to know I know what I'm talking about. I agree, and I find that forcing myself to maintain my own mail server keeps me there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you, uh, yeah. but I think that's great advice, Matt. And I would have the same advice. You need to maintain something of your own it, it, in a technical sense, right? Maintain your own GitHub repository, maintain your own service and server. And not just like, I, I, I think what we can probably agree on is not just stuff in your lab, but maintain something real that, that people use and rely on correct yeah a hundred percent and in fact the reason why i specifically tell people run your own mail server is so that i can say and use that as your daily email and the yep. reason for that is when you are six hours into debugging some terribly frustrated thing in your lab and you're ready to quit you just turn the lab off and you come back to it maybe a week later yep when when you're six hours into figuring out why your darn email won't work You've got to keep going if you want to get email. Mm -hmm. And that, that moment right there where you've got to get going if you want to get email, mm. that's the moment where you're going to take shortcuts. And those are the shortcuts that are kind of come back and bite you six months later and get you your first forensic experience. Mm. Yeah, which is exactly the same mistakes that many seasoned administrators do. Like, shit, it's broken. It's not working. Make it work. And six and months that later. that will teach you as an incident responder what to look for when you go right. into an org you're, you know where the bodies are buried because you've buried the same bodies in the same places. <laughs> but that's great advice. <laughs> but that's great advice when it comes to software, too. And some of the experiences I'm grateful for maintaining our own software, writing our own software, was I did crap like that. And I was like, oh, now I know what to look for. Now I know what to talk to people about because, like, I was under the gun and had to make those hard decisions mm -hmm. and introduced heinous vulnerabilities. And I was like, oh, got to fix that. <laughs> and, you know, Definitely for doing it as a side project, but even more so if you're an infosec person who has done system administration time, I think it will make you a more compassionate incident responder. Agreed. Because you are a lot less likely to just callously mock somebody who got owned. I am. If you yes. know for sure you could have gotten pwned the same way. I, Jeff, I have gotta... so much empathy for <laughs> software developers having done software for a product that other people use, right? Because it, again, it's different maintaining a little bit of software for yourself. But maintaining something people use on a daily basis, and you're at one time I was the primary developer, totally different story. Jeff. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go off on a little bit of a tangent. Uh, PCI. You Encryption. No, not even PCI. <laughs> uh, although we could. Um, who's your QSA? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, 
you you have an interesting usage of the term infosec and i am curious as to how you define infosec no right or wrong answers i'm just curious well, you said something early on when you were talking about your history. You did this, that, and the other, and then InfoSec was becoming a thing. So you know, how do you define InfoSec in this context? That's a really good question. I don't think I've ever asked myself what my definition of InfoSec is. I, I think it's a broad umbrella that describes people who are trying to keep things working the way they're supposed to work. And so I think InfoSec, it, it includes system admins, it includes, you know, all kinds of people who really are just trying to make a thing work the way it's supposed to work and stay that way and be dependable. Fair enough. Was it last week on the show, gentlemen, we were talking about uh, InfoSec versus CyberSec? Or was that on my show? I forget. I think which. that was on your show, Jeff. I think it was on my what, show. What the definition. So compare and contrast uh, uh, InfoSec versus cybersecurity. Are they synonymous or do you see them as different? Hmm, that's another really good question. Um, I think it's the same thing by many names, right? We, we have information security. We have cybersecurity. We have whatever the flavor of the day is. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think it all just kind of comes back to people who have an interest in keeping things working properly and protecting whatever it is that's in it. Um, I, I also see this, there's always this drama online between the hacker community and the, what do they call it, uh, the corporate information security and the people throwing shade back and forth at each other. I don't see any really reason why we need to have that. Um, I think we all have pretty aligned interests for the most part. Right. Matt, since you work at Google, I have to ask you because there's a website dedicated to <clears throat> tracking the projects that Google has killed. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not poking fun at Google. I'm just sometimes I'm disappointed because it's a product I really liked and I, I, I used to use, but you know, they killed it. Is there a, can you give us any insights into that? Is that a related to a security thing or is that just because Google's putting out so many products that naturally some of those ones aren't going to make it? Is it highly innovative? What's your take on that? I think Google finds strength in being an evolutionary company, mm -hmm. which means instead of having like one person, like Apple has the Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs has the vision and all the way down to the lowest desk in the company, you're doing what Steve wants. Mm -hmm. I think Google kind of prides itself on being the kind of company that lets evolution do its thing. And if you as an engineer, you have a good idea for something, you can go ahead and start prototyping and implementing it and trying it out. And because it is so large and there are so many people, right? Evolution has produced many animals that look alike from common trees. I think it's fairly similar at Google that you'll end up with many products that are similar because many different people had good ideas and they rolled with them and they wanted to see which idea will succeed best. Um, I think that's been really powerful for Google in a lot of ways. One of the ways it has been unfortunate for the company seems to be a lot of those thing ideas people came up with were chat apps. Um, yeah. My favorite true. ever. But Google I mean, product. some of them were Angular, and Angular wasn't bad. Python's pretty good too. Right. Um, my my favorite product was actually Google Contributor. You could select an amount of money monthly that you would agree to pay to website owners, and then up to your budget, when you visited a website that was a partner in Google Contributor, oh, I remember instead that. of showing you an ad, they would like take a penny and show you a cat picture. I thought that was and a the, great idea too. 
and the cats were literally really all Googlers cats. We had oh, a, like a queue hilarious. where we could upload our own cat. <sighs> right. And so you could occasionally see your own cat on ads. That was the best. I'm so disappointed. It's gone. <laughs> That's cool. Right. I'd pay for that model. I, well, in well, fact, yeah. tried to get my parrot uploaded and they were like, no, it's just cats. It's just cats. <clears throat> yeah. Could your cat, a cat be eating the parrot or could the parrot be eating a cat? I was going to say, if I put my bird up against a cat, I think the cat might potentially lose. Whatever yeah, I think, Matt, you're a bird person, aren't you? But I mean, also, yeah. but also, I mean, let's give Google credit. I mean, you came up with Kubernetes and, and that and that really took mm -hmm. off as well. So, and, I mean, and, having and, a highly innovative culture uh, and putting things out there is, uh, I think, important. And Gmail's finally out of beta. I, <laughs> I, I think uh, evolution is messy, but effective. Yeah. Huh. So... I wanted to plus up your, your suggestion on running a mail server, and that is if you really want to get some skin in the game, put your spouse or family on that mail server as well. Yeah. Now you got users <laughs> oh, to support, yeah. right? Agreed. Yeah. And then if you want to give them webmail because you know they're going to want it, now you got to maintain a web server too. Mm -hmm. mm, and you got a lot of attack surface to cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even better, host it on WordPress. <laughs> install wordpress yeah yep i mean there's it, I, I i always go back to that because no matter what your economic situation it is relatively affordable to you know fire up something even just in aws or gce mm -hmm. and put five or ten bucks a month toward running your own infra and the learning payoff for that yeah is huge yep absolutely no I completely agree absolutely um so where where do you what do you where do you see growth now? What's what's in front of you? That what what hill do you want to climb next? Well, I I think there's so much maturity still to come in incident management. You know, people want more from us all the time. You know, they now want to know in shorter time frames what we think might have happened, where they might maybe affected, maybe not. There's still so many more procedures and tools that need to be built and need to be learned and things we need to do to get to be where we're really truly serving what people need from us as incident responders. Uh, I think I'm going to continue to grow in that area. As a personal area of growth, you know, I recently became a manager and now I'm affecting these sorts of changes through others, you know, through team building. And that's a personal hill that I'm climbing. Um, it turns out managing is really hard. Yeah, we heard that from our previous guest too. Um, and I think there's some, there's some folks that want to stay technical and be on that technical track and others that want to technically transition. he didn't say it was hard he said he sucked at it yes no it's a great <laughs> point good point jeff um but what's that transition been like matt for you is that something that you welcomed is that something you made a conscious decision of like what was that process like it it came for me i i have always intended on remaining a technical contributor only you know i've always mm -hmm. valued being the fixer that you send in to fix a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been my role for, you know, 25 years in, in rescue and in tech. Right. Um, and then it, it slowly came to be that I was focusing more and more of my time on the smooth operation of the people around me and making sure they were happy and making sure they had good morale and noticing that there were areas where we might need to train differently and kind of trying to get the team to train differently. Um, and it, finally occurred during a discussion with my manager when they told me, you know, all the things you've been doing in the last quarter are really wonderful things on a different ladder. Uh, and, you know, I had wandered my way into managing by becoming more concerned about 
the team than I was about the specific technical stuff I was on. Um, and then I just decided to roll with it. I mean, I found myself there. I might as well keep going and see where that leads. That's awesome. <clears throat> Matt, I got a, uh, a weird question for you. Um, you know, I know we've met a number of time in person, and uh, it's clear on this call that um, your, your hair is what they might not consider, you know, manager type. Um, you know, and given that you're in Google, fairly, you know, uh, progressive company, what's your thought on, you know, sort of the alternative look as it has been termed, um, through quote, corporate America. I mean, like my retail sales career is effectively over. I mean, I've got visible tattoos and piercings and, and that type of stuff. Um, but what's your thoughts on going into someplace like Google, um, and with, you know, having a mohawk and red hair and like, is this something you should be concerned about or is it less so nowadays? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think you can look at police departments to find your answer to that, right? Visible tattoos used to be completely verboten in police departments and now you can have full sleeves, right? Mm. I think the alternative look, you know, being able to have a pink mohawk, being able to have, you know, fingernail polish on me, it's always been important to me that wherever I'm working and you know I had green and purple hair when I worked at NASA too it's always been important to me that I'm able to be expressive um, and I've been privileged enough to work places where that's a thing I can't say it doesn't matter anymore because there are probably plenty of companies where they'll look at you askew or you'll have a harder time mm -hmm. being taken seriously as a leader in an incident certainly it is much less an issue at Google than it ever was for me working in rescue and fire services where People, they're just like, blue hair, why? Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. um, but even at that, I always felt like it helped ground me in knowing that I was achieving because of my achievements, not because I was just fitting in. Um, and, and in fact, in spite of not fitting in sometimes. I love that. I don't know. I might have just gone on a complete tangent and nope, not that's, answered. No, that, that, no, no. Either way, it turned out perfect, and I think that... Yeah that that really is a great sort of outlook and that yeah I, I did it because i'm awesome and i did a great thing and i tried really hard as opposed to you know what i look like or what i smell like or you know uh, how many holes i have on my face type of thing larry yeah, actually I smells think... really good tonight i just want to throw that out there like being <laughs> in the same room as larry and that's not always the case i no, mean it goes not. it goes both ways too i don't always smell really great either so i i think some of what we collectively look at as kind of the hacker mythos or the hacker dress i think a lot of it has its roots back in kind of a common inability for many of us to fit in with crowds when we were younger and a, a conscious rejection of trying to fit into crowds anymore and then we developed our own look and we found our own crowd and we found our own people now infosec as you would define it is a larger tent than that so we we are seeing people for whom the hacker dress just isn't for them, and that's cool. Um, but at the same time, I think we fit in, right, regardless of our dress. Cool. I, I, I think that we've evolved to this point where we haven't put a stereotype on what a hacker should look like. And I also think over time we've all kind of learned from each other in that our styles have kind of mixed, right? Where, like someone like me who maybe some most of the time like i like to dress nice because that's my style but like i also like to rock a kilt at a, a con because that that's kind of that 
that feels kind of cool. That's kind of like I like it's that. Liber- it's liberating yeah, and freeing. Like that, and that's cool too. But I also think some people who may not and dress see, I was, nice. And I was may just also, talking about your testicles. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think some people that maybe not like maybe want to dress more conservatively might. And like there's been this kind of sharing of styles. I think all kind of like coming together on the fact that like uh, there's no stereotype on what a hacker should look like, right? Yeah, and, and I think we're better off for that, right? I think Agreed. when you see somebody at a at a conference and it's a security based conference, you know, th- there's no preconceived notion of what they ought to look like. You mm. know, I like to mindfully remind myself to walk up to everybody, regardless of what they look like, and just say, "Hey, what are you working on?" You know, not are you in engineer or are you in sales? Yeah. It's just like, hey, what are you working on lately? What are you doing? It's it's so true. And I, and I, and I hope, you know, folks coming in this industry, you know, hear what we're saying now and, and understand that too because I've been in so many situations. And one is actually really funny. John Strand, who's one of the greatest hackers that I know, when I first met him, he was in like full suits. Yep. Remember that? He was like, went through every Sands conference, he was in a full suit. And like, some part of it was like, really? Like, you, you don't, you're, you're hacking stuff? Because you don't have like any tattoos or like piercings or, yep. or mohawks or anything like that. that. So, how could you possibly be a good hacker, right? And then you get talking to John, like, oh, uh, like, I get it. Yeah. Now. Like, like, throw those stereotypes out, you know, out the window. That, that was uh, uh, so many years ago, I showed up uh, at an interview at Genuity. Uh, which was right after they became Genuity, formerly BBN, mm-hmm. uh, for for an interview there. And I showed up in a, a, a sport coat and tie, mm-hmm. and I sat down with the interviewing manager, and she says, "Geez, a tie? I don't think I've ever had anyone wear a tie to an interview ever here. Like you're going to be an engineer, I expect you to have blue hair and wear a t-shirt and jeans." And I'm like, "Hmm, I kind of like this place." You should have said, but the original BBN hackers, all the picture I see are white shirts, black ties. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, and part of the reason why I, uh, you know, I ask these types of questions is because you know I, I don't have the typical look, uh, and you know it's in, in, in maybe I don't see the same lens that that other folks do. I mean, the first time I got a tattoo below my sleeve, it was awesome. I it was great for me, and I loved it. But then I stood in front of a sans class with a long sleeve shirt and taught and pointed at the the slides that first time and went oh shit i should use my other hand and then i forgot about it mm-hmm. and just it doesn't matter it did to me it didn't matter and people you know respected me because i was speaking intelligently and, right and and that type of stuff and and knew what i was talking about because i'd spent years crafting mm-hmm. you know i mean you, if you really want to go back and talk about what an old school hacker looks like an old school hacker looks like grace hopper Mm. Um, but I also want to go on the record with kilts and say that I think kilts are the perfect middle ground between men who are jealous of women wearing skirts and women who are jealous of men having pockets. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. So weren't, weren't, Matt, weren't you wearing a kilt at PacFest when we first met? I was, and mine has pockets. Mine has pockets, too. I will, you know, uh, the tactical kilt, right? Yeah, utility yeah. kilt. Yeah. Shit, utility mine, kilt, it's the I've perfect blend too. of form and function. My, I don't think mine has pockets, but I have a sparring, so I'm all set. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I have a purse, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. I, I was going to say though, you guys are spot on. It, it's it's really you. What once somebody starts opening their mouth and contributing, it doesn't really matter what the hell they look they look like. They, they it's not the packaging. It's what they're doing in the message. Mm. And it, I think there's a lot more tolerance in that for that now than there was twenty thirty years ago. Sure. 
to, to you know look beyond the the, the physical appearance. Yeah, you know, I, I do think it took true. a long time for some of us who we would consider the old school hackers to just kind of shed the trauma from our childhoods and get to the point where maintaining this closed club of people to have our safe space didn't make sense anymore. And thank goodness we are moving beyond that and, and being a big tent and saying everybody is welcome. You don't have to look any particular way. It is a, a cultural thing that we've struggled with for sure if you look into hacker history which i've spent more time than probably someone should looking into hacker history uh i truly believe that it is a cultural thing that we have to to overcome and like for good reason but also there's a lot of good reasons to to overcome it for sure uh matt i just have five questions uh left for you in there what we call five questions with security weekly so matt are you ready to play five questions with security weekly I'm ready to play. Three words to describe yourself. Reign in chaos. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Ooh, if I were a serial killer, what would be my weapon of choice? Do I have a time limit on answering these? I mean, um, within, within reason, there are no right or wrong answers, and we will not judge you on the air. <laughs> in, I would say inert gases. Oh, if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Um, uh, boring but functional. <laughs> Matt, what is your favorite hacker movie? Hmm, it's tough. I mean, I'll have to go with sneakers. Four games. Wow, I'm just I'm losing. <laughs> Jeff and I have this thing where, like, I want people to say hackers, and I earn a point. And when you say sneakers, Jeff earns a point. So I mean, hackers is is really great camp, and sneakers is really great actual, relatively legitimate technique. Ultimately, hmm. the Matrix is probably the most enjoyable one. Interesting, interesting. Very well put, uh, Matt. Choose two celebrities to be your parents: Lee, alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. Hmm. And by celebrities, we mean it can be really anyone—fictional, non-fictional, historical. Mm-hmm. Your parents, your current parents, could your be a celebrity parents, in your own mind. Like it's literally anyone, <clears throat> if you could choose to be your parents. Lucille Ball and Mister Rogers. Whoa. Old school, old school. Thank you, neighbor. Yes, Matt. Thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. It was really great talking to y'all. Thank you for inviting me. Stay tuned. Uh, the security news is coming up next. <laughs> 